Stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. I truly believe that thoughts are the greatest vehicle to change power and success in the world. Victory at all costs. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. But without victory there is no survival. To those waiting with bated breath for that favorite media catchphrase, the U-turn, I have only one thing to say. You turn if you want to. The ladies not for turning. Nothing will work unless you do, is a quote from the well-known activist and author, Maya Angelou. I thought the quote was apt for our guest today, a chief executive who heralds from Tasmania, and like Maya, has accepted risk and change hand-in-hand in building her career. In today's podcast, we had the opportunity to hear the story of someone who started life on the farm and their journey to leading one of Australia's most recognised brands. We gain insight to the mindset of a leader and what it takes to stand out from amongst your peers. From management consultant to bank executive to leading two ASX-listed companies, our guest today is Alison Watkins, Group Managing Director of Coca-Cola Amatil, former Chief Executive of Grain Corp, and previous partner at McKinsey and Company. Hello and welcome to another episode of No Limitations, a show where we speak to elite world-class performing men and women and unlock the secrets and influences that have shaped their destinies and you could apply to your own life. I'm your host, Greg Robinson, Managing Partner of Blenheim Partners, Executive Search and Board Advisory Firm. In this episode, Alison shares with us how she successfully navigated a number of business sectors as well as some of the key influences and turning points in her life thus far. We cover her thoughts on leadership, the economy, the headwinds and the opportunities facing Australia, as well as the strength of diversity. So sit back and enjoy this open conversation. Alison, welcome to the show. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here, Greg. Look, Alison, we haven't had too many Tasmanians on the show before. I believe you grew up on a farm and there are hopes you would pursue a career on the land. What, what actually happened? Well, I loved growing up in Tasmania and, yeah, I was a bit of a tomboy, loved being on the farm and I think like a lot of Tasmanians, you feel like Tasmania is the centre of the universe and why would you want to go anywhere else? But maybe also a bit of a chip on the shoulder as well and, oh, sure. and venturing to the mainland, as us Tasmanians call it, seems like a, a pretty scary thing. But, look, yeah, I absolutely, I went through school and was very keen to marry a tall, dark, handsome farmer and live on a beautiful farm in Tasmania. That was uh, what I thought would be a great way forward. Went off script when I met my husband, Rod, who was not a farmer and he was at university in Tasmania and came from a medical family and his parents really wanted him to go to the Big Smoke, to go to Sydney, to get some experience, to do an MBA. So I reluctantly tagged along thinking it'd be just a couple of years and then we could come back to Tasmania and live happily ever after. So off to Sydney, what, you two went? Yes, yeah, quite uh, quite young. So literally I'd just finished university and 
I joined one of the chartered accounting firms, which uh, was Two Schross back in those days, which yep. is which is now um, that was in the days when we had a big eight. That's um, right. Yeah. And spent four years there. And Rod did go on and do his MBA at the um, Australian Graduate School of Management. And I felt like I did an MBA by osmosis, <laughs> I guess. Rod really encouraged me to apply with him at the same time for investment banking and and the consulting firms. Oh, wow, and okay. to my surprise, I got a job offer from McKinsey and joined McKinsey. Big change. Yes, it was. Yeah. No, I, I um, was so fortunate. I think being around Rod and hearing him talk about all of those exciting opportunities, you know, I was pretty seriously considering doing an MBA myself. Mm-hmm. However, McKinsey were hiring people from a lot of different backgrounds and as a junior associate were willing to talk to people like me. I still sort of look at it and think, you know, they made a, <laughs> it was a massive hiring mistake. But, you know, I was so excited to get that opportunity and, and really that 10 years I spent with McKinsey was very formative for me. What were the key learnings for you? Well, McKinsey is a very, it's a very demanding place to work, of mm. course, but I think the things when I really look back, the values, very, very strong values. Um, so McKinsey was, was very, very much about having lasting positive change with clients. So that meant only doing work where you really felt that you could have a positive impact. Also people. So McKinsey is very much about building a great firm. So to progress at McKinsey, um, there was a very strong recognition of being a good people leader, of being someone who could develop others and bring out the best in others. So those were definitely a couple of important things. And then there's probably uh, one other thing that definitely hit me pretty hard was that if you really want to make a difference and have an impact, it's about not only being smart, but it's also about your persuasive ability. So I remember Clem Doherty, who was uh, one of the very senior directors there, he'd always like to sit down and chat with us sort of young associates on a Friday night over a glass of red wine. And he always said that to have impact, it's a function of your smarts, as he called it, and your persuasive ability. And that really made me realise that no matter how smart you were and, you know, you go and do great work and sit in a corner and come up with fantastic answers to tricky problems, but unless you are able to actually persuade a client to do something different, then really you had zero impact. And I saw a lot of people at McKinsey who went on to succeed and go into very senior leadership roles who they were not the best, smartest problem solvers necessarily. What they were was outstanding um, in building trust-based relationships with clients and being able to persuade clients, work with clients to actually achieve real change. And I guess during this time, you're getting tremendous insight with chief execs in the boardroom. Did you have aspirations during this period of 10 years that one day I'm going to be a chief exec? Was that top of mind? Well, it was very, very formative in the sense that certainly it just opened my eyes to what was possible mm. and um, even to to think broadly about all of the um, all of the component parts of of what makes a, a company successful to have that bird's eye view, which you know McKinsey, we mostly worked with the CEO 
or the board yeah. and to really see um, an integrated perspective and, and, and appreciate all the, all the moving parts and the challenges of being in one of those senior roles. I thought it looked really, really interesting and exciting and definitely aspired to move into a line role. So where I could have a P&L and be responsible for a business, that was definitely something that, that while I was at McKinsey, really became a very clear objective for me. I loved McKinsey and, and the, you know, the satisfaction of working with some great people and the coaching and learning I got and the, you know, really interesting variety of work that we got was fantastic. However, I definitely got to the stage where I felt like it would be really satisfying to, you know, to, to be the client and not the advisor. So where was the big break? Well, I was very fortunate. Once I got to partner at McKinsey and I started to think, look, it would probably be, you know, it's kind of you either stay and and you're going to stay and have a long-term career or else now would be a good time to leave. And I was offered a role at ANZ by John McFarlane, who was the then CEO, to join as head of strategy in M&A. And, you know, that was a tremendous role and it was a very logical sort of stepping off point. I think what I probably didn't appreciate at the time was when I was interviewed by John and and Elizabeth Proust, who was the head of HR at the time, I said, look, I'd really love to be able to go into a line role. And I I got that opportunity. Uh, John McFarlane gave me that opportunity. And, and, you know, when I look back on that now, I think, wow, that was a big risk for him to take because I think, you know, as you would well know, As a, as a consultant or a professional services person, you often get put in, in a box and people are, are apprehensive and, and rightly so about putting you into a role where you are uh, responsible for a large team, responsible for a P&L because they tend to think that you'll, you know, you'll overanalyze, you won't be decisive, all of those sorts of things. So the fact that John gave me that opportunity, that was that was really the big break for me because then you know getting your stripes as a line manager that's what's opened up other opportunities for me. But Alison, why do you think he took the risk? I think that John really was a wonderful leader to work with. He was not a conventional bank CEO. He came in at a time when ANZ knew that it needed to change, and he, you know, he, he, I can remember he used to, um, love, you know, pulling out his guitar and, and, and singing. He, he shocked everyone. Apparently the story goes by <laughs> driving into the car park on his first day as CEO in a red Jeep when oh, really? at that time you were only allowed to have, you know, black or white Holden Commodore. And there were, he, so he was an unconventional, guy and he liked to shake things up. We did a lot of great work early on. It was called the breakout program, but it was really a lot about how you create a performance and growth mindset and how you really think about the whole person. So things that now most companies would would be very comfortable with, but back then this was sort of the early 2000s, it was really groundbreaking stuff. And so that was the kind of guy he was. So he didn't, he was naturally someone who took risks. He also was someone who was very aspirational. And I remember being 
really uncomfortable because he would paint a picture of where he thought we could be as an organisation that would be a very, very bold picture and one that as head of strategy I was sort of thinking, crikey, I don't quite know how we're going to develop a set of plans that are consistent with that. But he really believed in what he called cognitive dissonance, that if you really put a picture out there and make it real, then your mind will find a way to move from the present to that that future that you've made it so real and you may not get the whole way there it's you know it's it's the aim for the stars and and achieve the moon that kind of approach but it worked really really well so i found him someone who was really inspiring really challenged me and he was willing to take risks so i think i was very fortunate to work closely with him so he got to know me and, and trust me, but also have someone whose who's natural disposition was, you know, let's, let's, let's have a go and, and see what happens. Alison, you came in in strategy role. You then had to make your move into a line role. What was the line role? And you're also a head of a business, which is part of a large machine. Did you achieve what you wanted to achieve? Yeah, well, look, the main line role that I was given was to run what was called regional banking, which was responsible for the retail and, and, and very small business customers for regional and rural Australia. And Elizabeth Proust at that time was running what was called metro banking, which was the, the city location. So we were kind of like twin businesses running the retail bank, if you like. And it was fantastic. I was surrounded, you know, I was, Elizabeth, very, very experienced line manager. Graham Hodges, who was running uh, small business at the time, very experienced. Brian Hartzer was running cards. So I was surrounded by some really great people and I, I definitely um, watched and learned and, and some of them, Graham Hodges, fortunately, was right in the office next door. So he used to help a lot as well. He was um, really, really helpful. So I know that it was a very different experience than um, I was probably expecting because I think as a as a consultant, as a former consultant and, you know, kind of strategy person, people will say to you, look, running a line business is different. But you, you sort of think, well, yes, but I've looked at a lot of people who do it. I've advised a lot of people who do it. It doesn't look that hard. I know it'll be different, but it doesn't look that hard. But when you get into it, you really do appreciate that there are very important differences and particularly, you know, what I loved for about Elizabeth, for example, was her, what I really learned was her trust in her team, um, her ability to make sure her team were clear on what they were doing and her absolute focus on execution and just making it happen and backing her team, her team, her team's recommendations you know, nine times out of ten, she would she would back them, and you could see when she, the one out of ten that she decided that she would want to sort of challenge or get into more detail, and so learning how to keep things moving as a line manager, and suppress those tendencies that you can have, um, with my kind of background to want to get into understanding. You know, well, why did we come up with this? Oh, this is a really interesting problem. I'd like to know more just for the sake of it. But keeping things moving, keeping the focus on execution against the backdrop of a really clear and agreed direction. How was the confidence during this time? I 
think that I was reasonably confident. I really wanted to be successful. That was a really important goal for me. I guess that's always it's a bit of the McKinsey insecure overachiever syndrome. Mm -hmm. I knew that I'd been given a tremendous opportunity by John and I was really motivated to be successful. I was also working with a very good experienced team. And I think in banking, there are a lot of executives who've been there a long time and they get used to having some bright young thing put in charge or they you know, I was fortunate to have a team of extremely experienced people who were willing to give me the benefit of the doubt and and that really helped as well. Okay. But you're still on the quest to get that CEO role, weren't you? Well, like you said, a bank, you realise after a period of time that the interdependencies between all the businesses are very, very high. So you might like to think you're running a P&L, but you know, in banking, you have a lot of shared costs that get allocated to your P&L. So there's actually a lot of things that you don't end up controlling. And then also, I think in banking, it can take a long time to change a trajectory because a lot of the book is there and to, you know, to, to try to grow it, it takes, it takes time and it, it can actually take years for that to play through. So while I, I really enjoyed it, you know, felt like I was, was learning a lot. I thought it would be fantastic to get the opportunity to run a smaller business where you could really have the end-to-end levers. So the opportunity to really own all of the revenue and the cost elements and also a business that was a faster-paced one. So I was very fortunate to be introduced to Doug Shears, who was the controlling shareholder of Berry Limited, which was Australia's leading juice yep. business at that time. And and Doug also was a very uh, inspiring visionary leader. He was someone who also was a definite champion for women. He really wanted to create more opportunity for women. He really, you know, he really believed um, he'd always take a lot of advice from his wife, Deirdre, for example, but he really believed that that women had an important role to play. So I think, you know, he really went out of his way to create an opportunity. And Barry at that time was probably about a five or six hundred million dollar revenue business with a really good leading market share position. So you had a lot to work with. But yes, it was definitely totally integrated right from um, sourcing fresh juice and and frozen concentrate juice through to the manufacturing, marketing, the brands that we had was fantastic brand portfolio and selling. And yeah, so it was, it was, it was perfect. And I absolutely loved the four years that I had at Berry before we ultimately ended up getting acquired by San Miguel, who yeah. acquired National Foods at that yeah. time. So this was around about 2006. But what's striking, Alison, you've, um, one of these few chief execs. Well, firstly, you've been chief exec on ASEC listed company twice, but you've changed sectors a number of times. Um, that's not easy. And nor, nor is it easy to get people to buy into bringing you on and taking that risk. So you, your next step was, again, was into a new sector. Well, yes and no. I think um, Grandcorp, which was the first CEO role, uh, first listed company CEO yeah. role I held, um, was, was you know, clearly it's, it's, it's really agribusiness. Yeah. However, I think it built a lot on what I'd, what I'd done and the experiences that I'd sort of 
been fortunate to accumulate. So running a business, then I also had uh, the opportunity to be on the board of Woolworths and, and ANZ. So I got the experience of being on the board of a listed company and seeing, you know, two very good listed company CEOs close up. And did you find that worthwhile? Definitely, definitely. I, I learned a huge amount. I think that, you know, Woolworths, which Michael Luscombe was the CEO, really admired him as a leader for really seeing that it was possible to to do the and so so he was very focused on on the shareholder and driving uh, a good sustainable profit growth and he was passionate about making sure that there was a strong focus on on safety and environment and he really drove across all of those priorities in a very consistent way and and that was the first time that I'd seen somebody who could do do it as an and rather than a feeling like an either or and a bit of a trade-off yeah and then the ANZ experience was was also as as a board member having knowing the organization was a real advantage um I came in you know I'd had probably a six-year sort of um break but yeah it was it was a a fantastic experience too. I mean, bank, you're in the centre of the economy. We went through, it was the. It was just like 2008 I joined, which was just as the GFC was unfolding. So going through that whole experience mm. with Mike Smith at the helm, who was tremendously experienced from, his, you know, Asia and um, Latin America. So he'd been there, done that, and uh, we had a really strong sort of safe pair of hands. But, yeah, so tremendous experience to be able to see those two close up and, and go through that experience. So, yeah, so Grandcorp, I think because I grew up on a farm and I've always had a strong interest in, in agribusiness and then food and beverage, mm-hmm. um, Grandcorp was a good fit really for me. Um, well, were you confident you were going to get the job? No, no, so I was definitely. stories about your preparation. <laughs> oh, yeah, look, I – Definitely thought hard. You know, I'd been in the running for a couple of other CEO roles previously and okay. missed out. And I really reflected on, you know, why was that? And the Grand Corp role I felt like was a perfect fit for me. And I really didn't want to get that phone call saying, sorry, you missed out and feel that I hadn't put my best foot forward. And so I thought, well, look, you know, because you never know who else is out there and internal successes. So you may not get it and 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 there's a whole lot of things you can't control. But I wanted to feel like I really had done everything in my control to put my best foot forward. And I was also conscious that this is agribusiness. This is a company that's never had even a, a female non-executive director it's a pretty traditional environment. Yeah. And so I really tried to say, okay, well, what are the perceptions that people will have of me, the board, who are the decision makers? What would they be thinking? Even, you know, if they don't know me, what would be the assumptions, maybe the biases that they could have in their heads? And, you know, it might be things like, well, you know, she'll, she's a woman, she'll get chewed up and spat out in an industry like this. She won't be able to be tough enough in dealing with some of our our partners. Uh, you know, maybe there's still a bit of the consultant baggage. She'll be, yeah. you know, too indecisive. Or so I really tried to make sure I addressed those during the interview mm-hmm. through some of the stories I told, and not wait 
not sort of waiting to get exactly the right question necessarily. And then I followed up with a, with a note to the chairman afterwards because I, I felt, you know, I felt like the interview was, was, was good, but not great. And I really thought, look, I don't want to leave anything to chance. So I, I thought, well, look, you know, I'll, I'll, because sometimes an interview, it's a moment in time. And, yeah, um, great. I thought, well, look, nothing ventured, nothing gained. So I wrote a follow up note sort of setting out what I thought was important for the company and my fit with that. And anyway, I got the job. So yeah, and that was a fantastic experience. So what did you walk into? A great and, and, and were there that were there those pre um, preconditions you thought about uh, or preconceived ideas that she's a woman and that she's not going to be tough enough? I think there was a little bit of that. It's funny because some of my Grandcorp colleagues would tell me that, you know, that was definitely the industry chatter. I never felt that certainly within Grandcorp. I only felt really strong support. But I think the broader industry probably thought, oh, well, good luck and uh, and uh, we'll see how long she lasts. I think when I when I arrived, it was at a time when the wheat industry had just relatively recently been deregulated, which yep. was driving a lot of change. And also um, GrainCorp itself had made a major acquisition which doubled the market capitalization of the company and went on to be proven to be a very wise acquisition, but at the time was something that surprised shareholders and shocked them, had, had created a bit of a backlash. So the company was on the back foot somewhat with its shareholders and there were a lot of question marks over its ability to be able to absorb this acquisition and make it successful. So it was actually really good. From my point of view, the, the deregulatory um, theme created a lot of really interesting strategic opportunities. So that was something that, you know, for me, I was fortunate. I worked um, with a really strong um, strategy executive who was very experienced. And I think we were able to really put together quite a distinctive strategy for the business that capitalized on that. And then, you know, also with an integration, that was something, a merger integration, I had a lot of experience in that as well. So I think I was able to get some runs on the board. And um, yeah, it was, it's a wonderful culture. The organization um, is a, it's, you know, so many, uh, so many great people, so much experience. And we had um, a great four years uh, until until the attempted takeover by Archer Daniels Midland, which unfortunately sort of all ended in in tears in 2013, which was the year that we had three prime ministers and three treasurers too. I think um, we kind of got caught up in in the politics of that, unfortunately. And you made the decide you made the decision that you were going to move on. Yes, I did. I had we had all assumed and you know it was highly likely I think that that takeover was going to proceed yeah. it was pretty logical but at the um at the last moment the treasurer rejected it yeah. so I knew that if it was going to happen I wasn't you know I wasn't going to be around I wouldn't be part of that future so I had had an approach from Coca-Cola Amatil in the meantime and so I'd sort of gone part way down the track with them and then yeah. also I think I felt like I'd nailed my colors to the takeover happening because I really did believe it was the best thing for the company and for the industry because it's an industry that there's a lot of aging infrastructure and ADM were going to bring in a lot more capital and and refresh it and I thought that was that was going to be a really positive thing both for the, the industry and the company so when the treasurer decided in his wisdom not to 
uh, let that proceed. Um, it was a big, I felt like big call, wasn't it? It felt like a big call at the time. It was just after the 2013 election when the coalition was returned with a strong national party representation and. I say that I think, you know, there, there are a lot of reflections on that. I think the, the politics, certainly the farmer influence, uh, on the national party was, was a part of it. Okay. Also, I think perhaps, you know, ADM could have done a better job of really understanding the local landscape and the, the politics of agriculture and, and, and handled that better. So you then made the move to this company called Coca-Cola Amatil. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. So what actually is Coca-Cola Amatil? in the sense of the products and the regions that you cover? Well, Coca-Cola Amatil is all about beverages and we are an anchor bottler of the Coca-Cola company. So our relationship with the Coca-Cola company is really our foundation, our strength. So we have the right to manufacture, sell and distribute the Coca-Cola brands in Markets like Australia and New Zealand, also Indonesia, um, PNG, Fiji, Samoa. So we have franchise arrangements for each of those geographies okay. and we get to produce the, the Coca-Cola beverages. We also have the Coca-Cola company as a shareholder on our board, about a 30% shareholder. We have other partnerships with, for example, Beam Suntory. So we do Beam, uh, all the Beam products, Jim Beam, yep. Canadian Club, both the ready-to-drink formats and also the full bottle spirits. And then we have, you know, high-end whiskies like uh, the Japanese whiskies like Hibiki and Yamasaki, uh, some of the Scottish whiskies like Lafroig. And we also have coffee. We own Grinders Coffee, which oh, okay. is um, a very important segment. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, a business called Never Fail, which does bulk water. So slightly different across all of the geographies, um, Australia and New Zealand, we really have that full range spanning across non-alcohol, alcohol and coffee. And when you took on the role, firstly, why did you take on the role? And secondly, what were you charged to deliver? What was the mandate? Well, Coca-Cola Amatil was, you know, always a, a, a pinnacle, you know, it's if you, if you love this sector, fast-moving consumer goods and you love food, beverage, um, even Agri, because of course at that time we owned uh, SPC. Oh, of course, um, yes, yeah. So it felt like a really, really good fit. It felt like a you know an organisation that had the complexities of the partner relationships and the strengths that you get, the benefits that you get from being so connected to global organisations like the Coca Cola Company and Beam Suntory. Also being a listed company, having the the, the geographic diversity. It, it's just got so many you know, moving parts and really um, interesting challenges. It's a strong company. It was at, though, um, you could see quite a, a threshold moment where the strategy that the company had been pursuing for the last few years had been pretty successful and delivered strong shareholder returns. But we got to the point where there were a lot of pressures coming down the line at us yeah. from sugar yep. to innovate, a lot of growth happening in categories that we weren't involved in or weren't strong enough in, plastic early then but that has has really accelerated yeah. so and and to be able to also you know recognize that we we'd probably let ourselves get out of line as far as the pricing of some of our products so we'd become one of the most expensive markets in the world to buy a coke 
and there was a lot of pressure from customers and also, you know, a lot of, yeah, just uh, channel conflict that that created as well. So a lot of things to get stuck into, but fundamentally a really strong, successful business with um, a lot of diversity. So what is the customer saying now? Well, I would say that based on the, the, the surveys and, 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 and the feedback that we get, I think our customers would say that we are in a much better place and we're working with them to really create value in a way that we probably weren't at that time. It's much more of a partnership relationship, particularly with our larger customers. Yeah. I think they would say our portfolio is much stronger, yeah. that we've responded to that changing competitive environment, that our prices are more competitive, that um, we've also stepped up to the plate on, on sugar and plastic yeah. and water. And these things really matter a lot for customers, for consumers, and you know, and also for broader society. And, and how, how big has or make you talk us through the impact of social media? around you know, the likes of sugar, plastics, recyclables, sustainability? Yeah, I mean, social media has certainly had a, a big part to play. I think that, you know, these were these were sort of looming storm clouds for, for our industry yeah. for a while. So, you know, the interesting thing on sugar, for example, is that the amount of sugar that we consume um, and the amount of sugar-based beverages that we consume has actually declined quite markedly over the last 20 years, okay. but obesity has gone up quite markedly over the last 20 years. So there's a lot of um, contributing factors to obesity. And I think, you know, Coke, unfortunately, the brand Coke became a rather a beacon, an icon, an easy sort of symbol of 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 what people saw was a big part of the problem. Mm. And I think that was quite hard for us in the early stages because we, you know, we we didn't want to acknowledge that and okay, and really, really, yeah, no, and I think, you know, the, as I say, the, the facts are that sugar, soft drink consumption is less than 2% of the calories of, of an average diet. So, you know, even if we all stop drinking soft drinks, it's not going to fix obesity. However, I think what we have really come to recognise is that, you know, we definitely have a tremendous role to play. Our customers and our consumers expect to see us doing that. Our customers and our consumers want choice. So we've really pushed hard to increase our offerings of, of low and no sugar beverages and also small pack sizes. So, you know, the little 250 ml cans and and PET bottles that you see. So we've really added a lot more choice. That means that, you know, the consumer can decide for themselves if they want to have a, a, a Coke Classic um, or whether they want to have a Coke No Sugar, but we'll make that choice available for them and then we'll reformulate. So you know, brands like Fanta and Sprite and um, Powerade, we've been able to, you know, dramatically reduce the sugar through a combination of just making them a little bit less sweeter over time, but also uh, using other sweeteners. Um, for example, in Sprite, we use stevia to reduce the sugar without compromising the taste because nobody wants to compromise the taste. So, yeah, I think, you know, we've, we've come a long way. We've set ourselves a goal to reduce sugar by 10% from where we were at the beginning of 2016 by 2020. And we're okay. on track for that. And then we're shooting for another 10% by 2025. And what's the uh, container deposit scheme? Yeah, look, container deposit schemes are another example of, of probably where I'd say as an industry we were 
we, we had our head in the sand for for quite a while, quite a number of years. We resisted the idea of a container deposit schemes, which basically adds a deposit to every bottle or can mm. because, as you can understand from a consumer point of view, it makes the price go up and that, you know, tends to have a bit of a sticker shop effect. Yes. And we felt, you know, particularly when we looked at Victoria, there were better ways to solve litter, which at the time when the container deposit scheme was introduced in New South Wales, the focus was all about litter and getting people to return bottles. I think, you know, looking back now, what we see is that container deposit schemes, if they're well run, they, yes, they do produce that initial shock for the consumer, but the consumer gets used to it and, it, you know, in a year's time, things sort of go back to a normal growth trajectory. But container deposit schemes are really helpful in making sure that we get clean litter streams. So bottles come back, PET bottles come back with other PET bottles and then they can be recycled. And if the litter streams come back as as clean, then you get a better yield when you do the recycling. So for us, recycling and making sure that we're using, we're now using 100% recycled PET in all of our single-serve bottles. That's a big, big step forward for us. And being able to get those clean streams is really important. Now, at the moment, we're still importing that recycled resin from okay. overseas okay. because the we still need the waste industry and our own collection efforts to get more and more mature. But where we want to get to is that we can source that material from Australia. So a bottle that was produced in Australia can be captured, recycled and turned into another bottle that gets consumed in Australia. That's where we're trying to get to. And in your role as CEO, Alison, why do you think the, you said the industry was playing catch up to a point there? Why was it so slow to understand the customer? Well, look, I think that, you know, I mean, there's a lot of discussion and, you know, in, in particularly in the last sort of two to three years about purpose and the role of companies in in making societies better as well as delivering for shareholders. And I think that that discussion has really um, come to the fore and helped us really look at ourselves and, and challenge ourselves and, and recognise that, you know, we do have a producer responsibility to, if we're creating waste products that end up as waste, then we have a responsibility to be part of solving for that and making sure that that waste gets captured and 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 recycled and also that we're actually reducing the amount of waste that gets produced in the first place. So I think there's been quite a lot of really good reflection by companies in general. And as we've moved to a, sh a focus on recycling as opposed to just a focus on litter. So I mm. think our objections in the early days were more about there's better ways to solve litter and and probably there are. If you look at Victoria, they've got a really good culture where this litter is very low, people pick stuff up, there's more bins. So litter's, you know, is but but the opportunity is really around recycling and that's what I think we've recognised as an industry that if a scheme is well run and there's not too much of an impost on the consumer over and above the actual deposit itself, because that's the risk that these schemes can become bureaucratic and quite costly in themselves. But if they're well run 
and we are fortunate to have the opportunity to be part of running these schemes um, on a not-for-profit basis with some of our industry peers right. um, in in New South Wales, in Queensland, and we will be part of Western Australia as well. We've actually been running South Australia for 40 years. Um, so we've got a lot of experience and these schemes can can be a real positive. How do you lead? Well, I've I've learnt a lot from, you know, I think I've been fortunate because I've moved around quite a bit and, and mm. then also had the board roles. I've been able to work with a lot of different leaders and CEOs and, you know, all of them have had great strengths to admire and then there's also things that you think, oh, no, um, you know. So I've sort of been able to put together a bit of a picture of what I think, um, you know, the leader I would like to be, if you say, which mm-hmm. – and then also to be able to sort of match it with my own style as well, because it has to be something that you can you can get out of bed every day and and be that person, or at least try to be that person. So I think I would describe the things that are important to me are I really believe that as a leader, my I'm only one person, and my role is to create an environment w- which brings out the best in everybody in the organisation. So. I really am trying to create that environment. So what do I need to do? I think I need to make sure that we've got a clear direction. Um, I need to make sure that we've got then, you know, the detailed sort of plans and incentives and processes and, and, and everything that goes to making it possible to achieve that direction. Um, and then I think I also have a really important role to create the drive, the energy in the organisation to be a you know, a positive, optimistic force because I think you can have a clear direction, you can have all the details worked out of how, but if there's no passion and drive and energy and belief, then you probably won't be that successful. So I think as a leader um, for me and and for, for all of the leaders in our business, it's about those three things, um, the direction, the the detail of the plans and, and the how-tos. And then, but the energy and the energy is such an important, intangible, but such an important part of of what creates a positive culture and makes a place successful. But how do you convey that energy? I, mean, I know it's an intangible, but how do you convey that to everybody across the organisation? How do you communicate that way? Well, I think I try to make sure I'm in the right mindset. So that's an important sort of ingredient and, you know, we all have our bad days and some days I have to sort of feel like I'm, you know, I'm going to be a bit of an actor today almost. But I, one of the things that I've observed is, is I think good leaders are consistent. So, you know, you're always conscious that you might be seeing someone who only sees you once a year or, you know, and they're going to form an impression. Yeah. So I want to make sure that they, they have a, a good experience. We also at, Amateur, we have a um, fantastic platform called Workplace, which is by Facebook. So it's it's like an internal Facebook for 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 work. And we were one of the early adopters in Australia of Workplace. And I can't tell you how in our kind of organisation, which is a fast-moving consumer goods and it is fast-paced and we've got a lot of sales reps out there, um, a lot of people, you know, in regional communities. We've got people across six different geographies Workplace is just a fantastic tool for us as senior leaders to be able to be 
constantly seeing what's going on. People are posting pictures of, you know, the display that they they built in, you know, in the Glenorchy Safeway or the, um, you know, the Cairns convenience stores or we're seeing a lot of nitty-gritty displays and evidence of what people are doing or it might be stories about what's happened in their local community that we've contributed to, maybe some flood where we've got involved and helped our customers out in Fiji. There's just so much happening on Facebook workplace as we call it all the time and to be able to get in and contribute on that as a leader is is really 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 effective technology how important is the the focus on technology and where is it going at coke well technology is definitely i mean it's changing businesses and business models and we look at you know it's definitely having an impact for us so our customers for example are being impacted by technology we have new customers emerging because of technology. So the the food aggregators, for example, like uh, a, a MenuLog or an Uber Eats, yeah. these are these are customers who didn't exist before, or um, Amazon or the e-commerce platforms that our major customers are are now developing. Or if you go to Indonesia, where you see Grab running around um, delivering anything and doing any providing any service that anyone wants or gojek um, there's there's business models that are really changing the landscape for our customers and so therefore that's really really important for us so we you know it, there's so many different examples but one thing is we've we've we have what we call amateur X which is um, all about our sort of the way that we tap up in tap into the startup community, the way we bring the startup mentality inside and build our own capabilities to to work with with startups and um, to have more of that mindset ourselves, um, that's been a really exciting development. And we've made some investments in our corporate venturing fund that are designed to be able to add value to our customers' businesses. Um, we also have used technology to solve some of the, the tough problems around sustainability. So I was okay. talking before about recycling bottles. Yeah. A carbonated bottle actually has a lot of pressure in it and it wasn't possible to make a recycled, 100% recycled carbonated bottle because um, it wouldn't perform reliably um, until, you know, thanks to um, some of our talented team members um, deep in our supply chain yep. who've, who've been sort of trying to crack this problem for a couple of years, we have now, and this is, uh, this is something that's really a world first for the Coca-Cola system, we've been able to crack 100% recycled plastic bottles for Coke, for example, or Fanta or Sprite for our single-serve range. And that so that... You know that's technology as yeah. well. So there's a lot of there's a lot of technology equipping our sales team with the best technology, so that they can walk into an outlet and know exactly what products are relevant, what dealings we've had with that outlet, what we call our picture of success, which you know tells them exactly what we should have in that outlet. To be able to use 3D technology to show the customer, you know, if we put a fridge here, this is what it'd look like, and this is why it'd be a good idea. So there's there's a lot of technology. We have really tried to strike a balance of of investing um, in technology where it is relevant for our customers and helps our customers, 
where it's most relevant for our sales teams and helps our sales teams. And we've also learned, I think, that, um, you know, there's no substitute in our business for face-to-face service as well. So mm-hmm. while our customers, some customers love using online platforms, um, there are many customers for whom having a relationship with a rep, having regular visits from a rep, um, is um, absolutely what they love. But when that rep comes armed with the right technology that can help that customer by making sure they've got the right range um, and they're capitalising on the opportunities that are relevant for them, then, you know, that's that's the magic. Do you see much in the way of headwinds coming, coming forward to all of us in Australia in regards to uh, the economy and uh, consumer confidence? I think we've got to... We've got to keep in context that, you know, Australia is uh, a very strong, prosperous country and, um, you know, we've had a massive rise in our living standards overall. We're all, you know, we're all, you know, massively better off than we were if you go back to, say, the early 90s. So we, we had, and, and, you know, and, and often sort of appreciating that, when I look at Indonesia, where it's a very different equation, consumers are still at the early stages of of GDP growth and the emergence of a middle class. So I'm often reminded, you know, that that we are a very fortunate country, and when we've got so we've got um, a lot of wealth as a country. However, there's no doubt that um, I think you know it's always a relative thing, and um, you know if you see your electricity prices going up. Um, the housing affordability uh, challenges that we've got. Yeah, These are things that are definitely, and you know, things like um, other other costs, um, you know, school fees where that's relevant. There's a lot of, there are quite a lot of pressures, and then we've got very subdued wage growth. So the combination of that is undoubtedly putting pressure on people to, you know, have to really think about either running down their savings or or making adjustments to their lifestyle. So I do think that as long as we can continue to to invest and grow as an economy, um, and I don't think it has to be massive growth. I think, you know, generally, if you look at the global economy, there's a re-rating down globally. You know, we're, we're in a much lower growth period. So we shouldn't benchmark ourselves with the past. But I think we need to avoid okay. any... You know any sort of major shocks, or and particularly make sure that you know we don't impose those on ourselves. So, in this low interest rate economy, you know, investing in infrastructure should be an attractive thing to do. Um, continuing the population growth, which has fueled our um, our prosperity over many decades, that's a really important thing to do. So, I I think that we, with good leadership from business and from from our federal and state governments that we can, you know, things might slow down a little bit, but I think that we can continue to grow, you know, and and see a prosperous Australia continue. And what about a prosperous Coca-Cola? Where do you see the growth going forward here, Alison? Well, we've put a lot of um, energy over the last sort of two to three years in making sure we are really well positioned for growth. So we've, we've added a lot to our product range to make sure that we're playing across all the categories because, you know, the landscape's changed a lot mm. and having waters, having dairy, making sure that we've got the kombucha, having 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 a really broad range, um, energy monsters, our energy partner, and having that's been a really important growth category. So making sure we've got the right 
um, portfolio and then on the alcohol side, making sure that we're strong there, coffee. That's been a really important focus for us, making sure that we are investing against our customers. So we have what we call our Feet on the Street initiative, which has seen us put another 100 reps on the street in Australia to work closely with our customers. So we're really positioning ourselves for growth. We've been through a couple of years, these sort of 2018, 2019 uh, transition period for us with the implementation of container deposit schemes in New South Wales and Queensland. That's also had an impact on, um, on top line demand. So yeah, we're looking forward to getting to the end of that period and, and being, you know, back in a position to grow from 2020. Um, you know, I'm feeling, uh, I'm feeling very encouraged. Yeah. What's diversity to you, Alison? Diversity is, I think, it's a it's a lot of things. Um, certainly, effective diversity, I think, is is so. I think diversity is not an end in itself. Okay. Um, it it's having creating an environment where because diversity, well harnessed, is a massive strength. Whether it's um, gender diversity or ethnic diversity or age diversity or diversity of, of views harnessed well, it's a massive strength. If you just sort of create diversity and then don't really manage that well um, to get the benefit out of it, it can be chaotic and it can can cause a lot of um, you know can cause a lot of friction and discomfort and, yeah. and, and wheel spinning. So I think that's an important point. I think diversity is about respecting and being genuinely interested and curious about other points of view, other ways of thinking, and really making sure that you've um, drawn out and, 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 and listened and been empathetic. Um, put yourself in another person's shoes and really try to draw out those different perspectives on an issue, for example. And I think sometimes that also just requires a lot of looking at yourself and recognising your your biases, your conscious biases and your unconscious biases and really challenging yourself to make sure you're creating an environment where you can make diversity effective and you can get those points of view out. I think, you know, I think we're, you know, if I compare with where we're at in most of our large organisations compared yeah. with when I started out over 30 Thirty years ago, it's yeah. it's chalk and cheese, and um, it's you know it's a wonderful thing. I think you know diversity is also enabled by the technology that we have and the changes in in uh, you know the we used to be very rigid about work hours and face time and expectations. In our organisation, that's changed dramatically as well. I think diversity is you know it's really important as a leader that you are calling out and 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 reinforcing because I think sometimes it can be something that you want as a leader but you actually have to really go out of your way to to show everyone that you're actually serious you have to actually uh, walk the talk on yeah. it and that's really important as well and the, the gender discussion you know you mentioned your preparation for that board meeting your willingness to take the CEO role on at Grain Corp what the commentary could be back. Have we moved on or do you still think that you know, for most women that's that's the mindset out there and, and us blokes have to be a lot more cognizant of it? Because we hear the debate and sometimes it's very polarising. Uh, I'm, I'm very interested because 
it's it's a tough game game out there to be a CEO. Very few people make it. You've done it twice as an, as an ASX listed CEO. You had a terrific career. But how hard is it, Alison? I think that it's not um, for me anyway, and and you know it's different for you know everyone's in a different place. But for me, I would say that it's not. You know, I think being being female, if you like gets you it gets you noticed in a way so i you know i okay. don't see it as a i don't see it as a disadvantage in in the sense that it, you know i think it can create opportunities whether you can then translate those opportunities into action that can often be up to you yeah, and point. i think you've really got to challenge yourself to say um how do i make make sure that i'm you know i'm doing everything that i can to convert it to an opportunity rather than allowing yourself to have some kind of victim yep. v- mentality and say, yep. well, you know, they didn't choose me because I was a woman. So I um, so I think that's a really important mindset. I do think that it's there's also a substantive um, change that is still going to be very important, which is just getting more women into line roles. Um, I was very fortunate. I'd Described John McFarlane gave me that break to run a PL at, at ANZ. And that was, that's what's really opened up the opportunities that I've had to take on CEO roles. So I think the more that we can get women at lower levels, and I'm fortunate at Amatul, we've got some great male leaders. Um, Peter West, who runs our Australian business, for example, has, has got two female CEOs that he's put in his team running our never fail bulk water business and our coffee business, that kind of leadership that gives women those experiences um, earlier on in their career, that's what's going to ultimately create a broader talent pool of potential women CEOs. And that, and I think that's really something that we've still got quite a lot of work to do because as we know, as we look in our large organisations, there's still a strong skew to more functional disciplines. Good. And you talk about, um, is it uh, shining the light under the bushel or shedding the light under the bushel? Is that right? Well, I've, I think I've said don't hide your light. Don't hide the light. Under a bushel. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's certainly something that I've learnt. And, you know, if I was, uh, if I had my time again, I might, I might do a better job. But I think I learnt that from Diane Grady, who was one of the partners at McKinsey that I worked with and, and of course has gone on to be a really successful non-executive director. And uh, she was a real trailblazer at McKinsey as far as I, she was McKinsey's first female partner here okay. in Australia and maybe one of the first in the world, I think, as well. And and so she always, you know, she would always say, don't hide your light. And by that she meant, you know, a very good piece of advice to a lot of people, but particularly women who do, we do tend to think, look, if I do a good job, um, I'll get noticed and then, you know, I'll get another opportunity. Um, but it really goes back to that lesson about it's not just about doing a good job. It's also about your persuasive ability, yeah. your impact on people. And you really need to not, you know, sort of blow your own trumpet necessarily, but you need to be connecting with people because large organisations, any organisation, it's all about relationships and influence and making a difference and building trust. So you need to be out and about. You need to be talking to people. You need to be pushing yourself forward, taking a few risks. You know, sometimes people may may rebuff you or not agree with you. And 
and you've got to be prepared to push yourself out there. So it's also, I think, about then creating advocates for you. So if people get to know you and trust you and see you've done some good work, but they have a relationship for you, then they'll speak up for you and they'll be an advocate for you. So you don't necessarily need to be the one who pushes yourself forward, but you'll have other people who are champions for you around the table. And you don't think women do that well enough? Look, I think that it's something that, you know, if you look at the sort of tendencies that are partly, you know, social conditioned and and maybe Mm. partly genetic, that women do tend um, towards to shy away perhaps a bit from from the limelight or or to push themselves in that or or can be concerned that they will be seen as as a pushy woman or aggressive or, yeah. So there's all sorts of... um, all sorts of social norms that I suppose influence how how we behave. Fair enough. Where do you spend your time as a CEO? Are you out on the floor? Are you, are you there doing a lot of thinking, a lot of reading? How does how does Alison run run the gig as a CEO? Well, uh, first of all, I I think I've <laughs> I actually live in Melbourne, but I work in Sydney, so yeah. I have the luxury I think of when I'm when I'm here in Sydney, which is pretty much all week. I'm here. And I'm on all the time, which, you know, I don't have to um, juggle too much and, and feel guilty about not getting home. And so, so I, I, I really like that um, to be able to be very, um, very switched on. And, and that means I can, you know, go along to dinners and um, I can, you know, have some time as well to exercise and all of those things. So that's sort of the overall structure that works really well. As far as how I actually spend my time, I think I am quite sort of uh, try to be thoughtful about that because, um, you know, as a CEO, as in any senior role, your time can get fragmented and you can get very reactive very quickly. So mm-hmm. I really try to think about, you know, okay, what are we trying to achieve overall and therefore where should I be spending my time? So, for example, for us, Australia and Indonesia are massive priorities. So I over-index on getting involved in, I hope, productive ways, um, particularly as we were developing our strategies for those businesses and uh, really getting the stakeholder buy-in, for example, from the Coca-Cola company. So, yeah, try and drive it off what's important. Maintaining the confidence of our shareholders as we've gone through this transition period has been also a really high priority and our board. So I spend quite a bit of time, um, obviously, with our board, working with my chairman in a way that, that, you know, works and suits her style, and then also spending the time with shareholders and making sure that we're We've got a, that narrative and, and, and they understand what we're doing and why that's really important as well. I like to catch up with my direct reports around an agenda that's focused on, on results, um, on people, on, you know, issues and on their own development and to make that a routine as well. And some of them like to do that more often than, than others. Then I also, um, schedule time for, um, regular catch ups with, our extended team. So that's probably about 80 or 90 people through the year where I just catch up just to take the temperature and understand how they're thinking. I think about where I go. So I try to get to our major markets and, and, and show my face. And sometimes, you know, you sort of think, well, am I really adding any value? But I guess I've come to recognize that people do really um, like to show you what they've been doing and they appreciate when you show up and you and you take an interest and and I love it I mean you know I'm so fortunate um, we have such a, a fantastic 
diverse business. So to be able to get out and go to P&G and visit the site up in Ley or to Surabaya where I was a couple of weeks ago or, yeah, or Fiji or, you know, it's uh, there's a lot of diversity in our business. And I think I think showing up and connecting with people is really important. But I mentioned Workplace, which is our social media platform. That's uh, that's a great way of connecting with people as well. So every day I would always be um, making sure that I'm I'm uh, engaged through that platform, you know, writing a blog, maybe doing some little videos, oh, okay. doing regular videos. So communicating and trying to connect with as many people as I can, but combining physical and virtual is, is uh, really important. Alison, you get paid the big bucks to make the big decisions. How hard is it and how lonely is it? I think that I'm very fortunate to have, you know, a good relationship with my chairman and I've always felt that. So having having a trust, a level of trust and an openness with particularly the chairman, the whole board as well, that's that's important. And then I think, you know, when when you have those those big decisions, I think, you know, some of the hard ones obviously are, are people related yeah. yep. in some ways. You know, some of the bigger strategic M&A type decisions um, that you might make or a site closure, you can do a lot of analysis and, you know, you can really make sure that um, the team um, has challenged itself and, and you can be confident, you know, that that's analytically, strategically a good decision and and um, supported by the organisation. The people decisions are probably the harder ones and I think that you know as a CEO it's always a it's always a balance of you want to have, build a team that um, is open and 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 trusts um, there's a high level of trust in the team and everyone is working as a team but then every now and again you end up in those situations where you've got to make a hard decision about a person that really can undo the team and you've sort of got to almost start again. And, you know, one of the things that I think I've got better at is just, you know, reminding myself that I'm, um, yeah, I'm definitely not running a popularity contest, that you need to have a thick skin, that people will disagree, people, you know, might be muttering behind my back and you just got to sort of accept that that comes with the territory and then with, with those sort of people decisions, um, you, you know, you just try, try to be balanced and fair and try to recognize, you know, I've been through those experiences myself. And, um, you know, I know, uh, that most of, for most people, you know, it's sort of, you know, you might have the, the shock and, uh, you know, rejection and the, the whole Sarah sort of cycle. But, People come through opportunities, then materialize again, and um, and everything moves on, and the organisation moves on as well. So those are the, and one of the things I definitely learnt from uh, probably a couple of people I worked with where they were too slow in dealing with some of those problems and particularly yeah. leadership problems. I really decided I didn't want to be one of those things because I know it's always hard and you can avoid them, but it's always much better when you when you sort of get on and deal with it. Do you have a, a mentor or a coach? Have you investigated that during your career? I have had, uh, I have, yeah, definitely. Um, I've, I've benefited from having some really good mentors through my 
career. So more people that I would call on for a specific piece of advice. Um, so, you know, it might be Ashley Stevenson, who I worked with at, at, at um, McKinsey a long time ago, or it might be uh, it might be a Doug Shears um, or, you know, it might be a Gordon Cairns, who I worked with at a long time ago as well, who understands our industry really well. So it'll be context specific um, about, you know, what, what advice I'm looking for. And then um, I have had um, some support from a coach um, called Stephen Miles, who's a, who's an amazing um, uh, guy who's based in Atlanta, knows the Coca-Cola company really well, which is okay. also very helpful. He does a lot of work out here and he works with a lot of CEOs and he's been really good for me in okay. just helping me really think through, you know, how I want to um, be with the board um, and uh, he's quite also, he's quite a, an opinionated sort of guy, which I find very helpful that, you know, he'll have a point of view and that, you know, I find that quite challenging as well as just a really, a whole lot of really good, useful and I would say international sort of particularly from the US, um, I find that sort of lifts the bar on on the experiences that I've seen and really helps me. And you're only ever going to be as good as the people you surround yourself with. What do you look, What are the common traits you look for as the CEO? Well, I think there are, I mean, you know, we when I look at the leadership team that we have at Coca-Cola Amateur, it's a great team. It's, it's a very diverse team, so mm-hmm. um, certainly don't, um, I'm always conscious of um, you don't want to hire in your own image. At the same time, though, you want people who have a common set of values. And for us at, at Amateur, you know, those are things like taking the initiative and owning the outcome, balancing decisions for today with doing the right thing for tomorrow as well is a really and and being straightforward and open so those values are really important I think you then look for um, you know for people who are just good at at getting things done and in the in the group office so our sort of corporate center we we really need to make sure that we've got a mindset of um, of being pretty lean and accountable to the businesses for doing a really good job serving them and then, of course, accountable to the board but really recognising that it's our businesses are the engine of our company. They're what drives um, value. They're the ones who are closest to our customers and being, being um, you know, really comfortable with that sort of mindset and doing everything that we can to, to support our businesses um, rather than sort of regard ourselves as at the top of some pyramid so a non-hierarchical environment, I think, is really what I loved about professional services, about McKinsey. We always had this uh, obligation to dissent um, was one of the things that you always got told from day one. You have an obligation to dissent. So that meant if you were in a meeting, um, you were expected to have a point of view um, okay. and speak up and yep. no matter how experienced the person next to you was. So trying to create that environment in a company I found is harder because hierarchy sort of is is tends to be quite strong but that that's the ambition and so certainly amongst um, my team an environment where everyone speaks up everyone is equal and it feels like a really good discussion you know sort of a, a conflict of ideas and debate um, rather than uh, 
um, a conflict around people. So no politics. I think one of the things I really love about our environment at Coca-Cola mm -hmm. Amateur, which is true, um, you know, it's just part of our DNA is we have people who it's not a political environment and also people just love feedback. They love ideas. They want to learn. They like getting feedback about what they can do better. So it's a really positive environment. Are you unconventional like Mr. McFarlane in any forms? Uh, I don't I, – I, nothing like him. I think um, – You bring the guitar into work or I anything don't, like that? Um, fortunately for – everybody I work with. No, I don't do that. No, I would say, um, you know, I'd love to have a game of golf and and uh, love to have a beer. And um, But no, um, I think, you know, working, it was sort of, I think you have to be yourself. Yeah. And, um, and I loved and learnt a lot from John and I probably dialed up a little bit what I, my natural state would have been, um, but that's not me. Fair enough. If we were to ring the Prime Minister now on the telephone and you're a CEO of a major corporate in Australia, what would you ask him to consider for the good of the country? Well, I'd, I'd overall be focused on creating an environment where business can succeed and prosper in Australia and business employs 11 out of the 13 million um, employed Australians. So business is really, really, really important and that's going to be the the engine of our future prosperity as a country. So against that backdrop, I think I would be really, I'd be asking him to consider um, investment in infrastructure and continuing to make sure that we can, um, um, you know, grow our population but grow it in a way that's sustainable with with good infrastructure, roads, schools, hospitals, everything else. And, and I'd be saying, that, you know, now's the time for us to, to keep doing that um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that would be one theme. And then I do feel that um, the um, the tax rate and the tax environment is, you know, it's, it's, not, it's an issue that's hard to get on the agenda but I'd be giving mm. some encouragement to say, look, we've sort of ended up in this strange position where we've got a two-tier corporate tax rate and our company rate for our larger companies is is very much out of line with our OECD partners with regional rates. And, and I do think that that's a problem for us. You know, I, I think that's something we need to face up to and, and address. So, you know, I think most Australians understand that business is important. And, you know, I, I just feel like we've got to move on from this unproductive sort of characterization of you know small business versus big business and and um and 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 really do that i'm very excited about um the prime minister's i'd be telling him his commitments around waste and the um the idea that we will become a circular economy in australia i think that's a really exciting idea and i'd also be um signing up to play our part in um making sure that you know, we're contributing to that circular economy. And do you think business contributes enough in the discussion? In the discussion around policy and so forth, you mean? Yes. I think that we are up for it and, uh, you know, I think that, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a board member of the Business Council of Australia. Yep. I think that we're absolutely up for that and it's really important that we are part of the conversation as as 
the BCA, for example, and the other peak bodies also as individual CEOs. I think that, you know, where there's an issue that's relevant to your sector, you should absolutely speak up for, you know, so for example, sugar tax, I'll, I'll always be, um, um, you know, very much, uh, vocal on that. Um, so, and I think that, that, that's what I should be. I think we have had, uh, a bit of an environment, as I say, the last couple of years, it's felt like, it's been a bit of people getting their head chopped off yeah, for, right, yeah, for yeah. speaking up. Yeah. And there's also were some quite dramatic changes in policy direction, which yeah. I think was, you know, if you were somebody who did speak up and then, and then, and then that policy just got ruled out without any sort of, um, sort of, uh, um, really good context, then I think, you know, there's maybe been a little bit of understandable, um, gun-shy CEOs. I hope that we can all move on from that and I think with the right environment, we can and we will. Alison, your husband. Yeah. He's been a huge support. Definitely, definitely, yeah. Does he want to talk us through what his career ended up going? Well, Rod, as I say, he was, uh, he was. yeah, I would, the only reason I went um, to the mainland was because of Rod. Yeah. He then did an MBA. He actually worked for... Um, uh, what was Whitlam Turnbull and then became Turnbull and Partners, so um, investment bank. And then when we had, we've got four kids, so when we had child number four uh, and I'd moved to ANZ by that stage, we decided that probably one of us needed to take a bit of a break and he put his hand up quicker than I did. So he's really put his career, um, his corporate career anyway, on on hold and um, been a fantastic father um and uh, now we've got all of our kids through school almost assuming our youngest passes her year 12 exams which are imminent um he's uh he's also though used the time really well to um you know i was sort of joked that i wanted to marry a farmer he's actually i've turned him into one so we now actually <laughs> uh, we own a farm down in western victoria um, which we have done for the last 10 years or so and he 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 loves that actually. He's really taken to it and does a great job with that. He's also um, uh, an open water swimmer, so he's just swum the English Channel and um, he has, has he? Yeah, uh, he's uh, swum around Manhattan Island um, this year, and then he just did the the um, Catalina Island back to LA, which is the third of what they call the Triple Crown. So he's now a Triple Crown open water swimming, and I think he's going to hang up his speedos, <laughs> maybe. But, yeah, he's um, – so he's – I think, you know, what I really admire about Rod is he's uh, certainly never had a victim mentality. He's never sort of kind of said, oh, you made me sacrifice my career. And, you know, he's he's actually used um, used the time that and the opportunities that it's given him really well. Alison, if you were to look back at that young, young lady going to university uh, before you met Rod, what advice would you give her? Well, yeah, it's. Uh, I have to say, I've got three daughters. I try to give them advice, and they don't. They don't listen to it, which is probably maybe just as well. But I think what I would say, what I would say is, get out there and give things a try. Don't make assumptions. That would be my number one thing, because I know when I look back at my very small world. You know, I was very quick to assume that there would be no place better to live than where I was, um, that, you know, I loved farms and farming and that that would be what I want to do. 
And I think that you realise that when you actually sort of get out and try things and maybe you're doing something that you didn't think you actually wanted to do, certainly for me, you know, moving to Sydney, working for a chartered accounting firm, you you learn things, you open your mind up to opportunities, you see what's you see new possibilities. Um, so I would definitely encourage myself to give it a go, not to talk yourself into things. Don't talk yourself out of things. That would be really the core piece of advice. Alison, on that note, really enjoyed your company today. Thank you for joining me. Thanks very much, Greg. You've been listening to No Limitations. 